Intermittency, it's a fancy word for describing this unique circumstance in renewable energy where the wind does not always blow and the sun does not always shine. It's a major problem in the economics of clean energy, spurring a host of competitive, innovative solutions each year. How could power companies hedge the uncertainty of weather against a backdrop of shifting price and demand? Well, today we're talking to a trailblazer in the renewable energy market about investing in renewables and managing risk. Welcome to season two of Clean Integration, a Saluna podcast. I'm John Belazaire, CEO of Saluna and your host. First, let me introduce my guest. Lee Taylor is the founder and CEO of Resurity, a risk management and information services company that operates at the intersection of financial technology, clean energy, and big data. Since founding Resurity in 2012 to commercialize research he conducted at Dartmouth's Tuck School of Business, Resurity has amassed contracts supporting over 7,000 megawatts of renewable energy generation capacity and counts many of the world's largest and most sophisticated companies as its clients and partners. Lee, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me on, John. So as I was saying uh, just before the start here, I saw you at the InfoCast conference. It's a big renewable energy conference. Uh, it was held in Scottsdale this year. It was really one of my first trips uh, since the pandemic. And when I arrived, it was clear that it was one of the first trips for just about everyone else in the world <laughs> since the yeah. pandemic. I think, you know, I was trying to get the numbers and I was doing these little interviews uh, during the, the conference, just chatting with people. And I think the number was somewhere around 2,500 people attended. And I, I saw you on one of the, the, the panels. We're going to talk about uh, hedging and virtual PPAs shortly. But what was it like for you? What, what was that like to, um, was that one of your first trips as well? Yeah, it was the first conference I'd done since the pandemic started, I think I was supposed to go to the Infocast solar conference that got canceled, you know, at the last moment, so, you know, right at the start of the pandemic um, and went into lockdown with everybody else. But yeah, so it was, mm -hmm. uh, it was quite the return because, you know, go from not interacting with very many people uh, right. in, in one room to 2000 in one hotel. <laughs> it was uh, zero, zero to 60. But uh, as I was saying yeah. before we, we started recording, I think it was a great, indicator of uh, the health and activity and optimism of the industry that that many people uh, were were there and or else people just really, really wanted to get out of their homes. Indeed. Yeah. I think people wanted to, some of the people I spoke to actually um, brought their families out and they, they, they went skiing, <laughs> they, went, yeah. they went hiking, they went to Grand Canyon, <laughs> you know, uh, people were just having fun. Um, some of the sessions I thought were, were, were lightly attended because people were just being with each other, you know, hanging out outside. Yeah. And it was nice, nice weather there too. I actually took the occasion to visit a longtime friend. So I actually stayed at his house. Um, we caught up after, I don't know, six years of not seeing each other. And he, he was my, uh, he was my personal Uber taking me <laughs> back and forth. Just so happened he lives like five minutes from the hotel. And so it was, it was a, it was a, a great experience and uh, I learned a lot. It was the first real major renewable energy conference that I've attended since uh, last year. I went to uh, Austin for the Proximo conference. It was also finance focused as well, smaller venue. Uh, so this was pretty interesting to see. So I want to start with the Resurity founding story, Lee. I'd love to learn how 
you started from some research uh, in grad school to uh, this amazing company. Can you tell us that that story? I was a first year business school student, and one of the requirements as as your first year at Tuck is you do. Uh, basically a project for an outside company or set of companies to try to solve real world problems. So basically take, take the classroom out to the real world. And so had uh, several groups come mm -hmm. and, and sort of bring this problem to the team I was working with at, at Tuck, which was essentially how do you price and manage the intermittency risk of a renewable energy project? And so, you know, the, the fundamental academic concept behind it is essentially that renewables have this phenomenal economic advantage, you know, put aside all the environmental benefits of, of renewable versus thermal power, but economically the fuel is free. And so this risk that, uh, you know, mm -hmm. your fuel costs will change dramatically and you have stranded assets in the future is really a non-issue for renewables, but that comes at a cost, which is that while the fuel is free, when and how much of it shows up in any hour, quarter, year is, I mean, there are averages, but it's uh, uncontrollable and, and unknowable with certainty. And that, and that comes at a cost. And it's, you know, the sorts of things that we've started developing products to, to manage. But I and, and my team sort of studied what, what would it cost to, to hedge that and sort of take that risk away from parties who don't want to be exposed to, to that intermittency, either as the as the seller of intermittent power or the buyer of intermittent power and mm -hmm. really fell in love with the concept of this was something that was a, a risk that needed solving for renewables to scale the way uh, we all think that they need to uh, from a climate impact perspective. And so started Resurity to bring, really, we, we started as a both an actuary and a broker. So we sort of analyze risk uh, and bring parties together in support of pricing and, and managing emergency um, mm -hmm. risk. So that, that was the, the origin and uh, started the company in, in 2012 and have been running since then. So what's the what is the product exactly? Is it a is it a insurance product? Is it an insurance policy effectively or something different? So today Resurity has two different business lines. One is the risk management, as the other is the information services that that overlap. And on, on the risk management side, uh, there's a handful of different products depending on whether you're the buyer of power, or the seller of power, uh, and whether mm -hmm. you're trying to sort of firm what you're buying or or entirely hedge, uh, you know, the revenue or the or the volume. I can get into details there, but to, to answer your question specifically, no, it's not an insurance product. Uh, it's often offered by insurers and reinsurers, but it is a uh, commodity derivative, and so the products that we support are. Uh, CFTC, NFA regulated. So these are um, ele electricity derivatives linked to uh, generation or, or linked to the, to the weather that causes that generation as, as risk management as tools. So for, from a, a layman's perspective, perhaps you can maybe describe it differently. So if I'm a, who is the beneficiary of the product? So it's the, it's the wind farm owner would buy this, this product and use it to smooth out their revenue or? Yeah, so let me take a couple of different um, specific examples of how uh, customers would, would, would use it. So uh, as a starting point, you know, using your example, you're a wind farm. And so mm -hmm. uh, either you're about to be built uh, or, or you're trying to get built and, and raise capital or you're already up and running. So it applies to greenfield and operational, but you're, you're uncontracted. So you don't have a PPA, uh, you don't have a, a bank hedge. Uh, you're just going to sell the power that is generated whenever it's windy for whatever the clearing price is during that hour. And that's going to drive your revenue. Got and it. so 
that revenue is highly variable based off of basically three factors. The average price of power over some quarter or year, the total amount of power you generate, basically was it a windy period or not? Uh, and then lastly, what, what's often referred to as, as shape, which is basically how well did wind speed basically correlate with power price? So average mm -hmm. power prices can be very high, but if prices only spike when wind speed dies, then you as the wind farm captured very little of that value or vice versa. If you happen to have a high wind event during that price spike, you've, you've captured uh, an abnormally high amount of that average price. So price volume and shape are really the three things that drive your revenue. And, and you can have pretty enormous levels of, of uncertainty about what future revenue is going to be both high side and, and, and downside. And so if you're that wind farm and you say, that is more volatility than I want to hold or my lenders want me to hold or my investors want me to hold. I want to hedge some or all of that. And so one product we have is called a revenue swap where we basically, let's say we all agree that next year uh, the expected revenue from that project is $10 million, but it could be 4 million or it could be 20 million depending mm -hmm. on those three factors, price, volume, and, and shape. And so uh, a hedge provider comes and looks at that and says, okay, well, if I guaranteed $9.2 million, uh, on average, you know, you're going to give up $800,000 of expected value because you, know, you went from 10 million to 9.2, but you've right. locked in 9.2. And so if right. you end up having a $7.2 million revenue a year, you get a $2 million check from the hedge provider to make sure that your revenue plus your hedge settlement lock in that 9.2 million. Um, and so 800,000 is an example, uh, but that's, that's the general concept for a, uh, a seller of power is that you convert a variable future revenue stream into a fixed known revenue. The flip side to that uh, is if you're the buyer uh, of power. So if you're a sustainability motivated buyer who is uh, has signed a power purchase agreement with a project and, in, and, and you're receiving the renewable energy credits associated with that PPA in order to achieve your own sustainability goals. Mm -hmm. Unless you have a facility that's consuming electricity at the same time or in the same location as being generated, you basically have a speculative financial position exposed to that project's revenues. Basically, how well does uh, it generate and when prices are high and low. So if you've bought power from that project, Again, you might have settlement that on expect, you know, you might expect the settlement to be zero dollars in a given year, but you could make 10 million or you could lose 10 million in a given year as, as the buyer of power, depending on, on, on price of power, windiness and, and timing of generation. So similarly, mm -hmm. a hedge provider can show up and say, well, I'll, I'll lock in an $800,000 loss. So again, I'm basically going to charge you an $800,000 premium off of your expected mm -hmm. value. But uh, if you have a you know negative ten million dollar settlement a year, I'm going to write you a check uh, so that you make that back. Or if you have a positive ten million dollar settlement a year, you're going to pass that through to me. And so you convert uh, a variable future settlement of your PPA into a known um, either known cost or known value, depending on whether your contract is uh, what they call in the money or out of the money. Is it is it above or below the expected market price uh, for the period you're hedging? Those two elements and the pain points, was that known to you when you wrote the original research paper or the, the original research exercise, or w were you focused more on the wind farm side? Very much on the wind farm side originally. And I think that, you know, the industry has evolved 
pretty uh, amazingly rapidly in the 10 years since we are just shy of 10 years started the company. So when we were doing research on this, most of the renewables industry was still built around long-term power purchase agreements with utilities. Right. And so that, you know, the financial hedges and, you know, uh, the commercial industrial buyers and virtual PPAs, those weren't really in the market, at least not at a significant scale. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, almost every wind and solar project at the time was selling their power to a utility uh, for, you know, often 20 years at their interconnection point. And so the only real risk that those projects held was how much volume they generate in a given year, right? So did they have, did they produce 120 megawatt hours or 100 or 80? And so that was sort of the weather risk that we started out looking at managing that uncertainty around, around total production because the timing of your generation and the power price were all being handled basically by the, the, uh, the utility through the power purchase agreement. But very rapidly, you know, the industry evolved and shifted more towards certainly there's still uh, utilities buying power, but you have a lot of financial hedges in the industry, um, as well as the corporate buyers buying that power. And so what that meant was that the uh, types of, of weather linked risks and who holds them changed very quickly. And so that that was a fairly significant shift uh, from when we from we started this to the point mm. that, you know, people are now trying to hedge hourly generation, you know, there, there are buyers of power uh, who are trying to hedge the hourly intermittency because they're trying to match that up with the around the clock consumption of their data center, for example. Right, right. And so uh, you've you've had a significant evolution of of who holds that risk. But at the end of the day, it all comes back to the same exposure, which is just right. nobody controls, you know, when and how much the wind blows and, you know, at what time uh, cloud cover uh, comes in over a solar right. project. And that has a financial exposure for someone. It's either the utility, uh, the project, uh, a bank, uh, a commercial industrial buyer. It's just depending on their contracts. Someone holds that risk, and and it's that's where that's the risk we work to to solve. That's awesome. Now, it's clear. In addition to those products, you also provide a host of different analytics, right? Really in depth data around what's happening in the market, market performance, etc. What are you? What kind of insights are you seeing coming out of the that data, and what what does the landscape look like right now? In short, very high volatility. Uh, <laughs> so and you know, why it's, is that? Is that <laughs> go ahead, elaborate. Yeah, so it's been um, you know we talk about you know the period from my you know my last conference three years ago to this conference was was really a, a pretty you know wild ride, obviously for the the world as a whole, but power markets yeah. specifically because. You know, you looked at 2020, demand for energy was down because of, uh, you know, impacts of the um, the pandemic, Follow, you know, a, a cold globe, excuse me, a, a mild global winter had gas prices uh, very low. And so, you know, electricity prices in the United States hit sort of all-time lows at all sorts of locations to the point where, right. you know, there were whole months in the, you know, middle of the country where, you know, the production-weighted value of power from some projects was three dollars. You know, normally you're you're looking at you know twenty, thirty, forty dollars a megawatt hour, mm. uh, and so all time lows hit, followed by in ERCOT in particular, but elsewhere as well. The winter storm in 2021 caused the highest energy prices basically in the history of mankind uh, to be experienced. Um, which caused all sorts of volatility, you know, both gains and losses for folks, depending on whether you happen to be a generator or a consumer 
during the those days where um, there just simply wasn't enough electricity to cover cover demand. And, and then that, you know, followed by where we are today, where combination of war and weather and politics uh, are, are causing you know, natural gas prices, I think, are currently six dollars, um, you know, an all time you know, high in recent memory. And so uh, you basically have just high highs and low lows. And, and that's you know, not just time over time, but, you know, February in, of this year was mild by comparison to a year ago. But you still had, you know, periods of both $3,000 per megawatt hour power in the Texas market, as well as, you know, periods where the entire, you know, entire region was negatively priced because you uh, had an oversupply of renewables in specific hours and people were shutting off plants that could otherwise produce clean electrons. And so yeah. you just have, I would say, it's a long winded way of saying, uh, yeah, in a word, high, high volatility is, is the state of the market. And as a result, do you see... Uh, your customers shifting in terms of what they're asked, the problems they're asking you to solve, or has it just increased the volume of people asking you to solve the same problems because more people have them now? Yeah, I don't think it's uh, changed the type of problems that we're solving. I think it's mm -hmm. mostly, you know, wh who's interested because there, you know, there are a lot of folks who've, you know, wanted to manage this, these types of risks all the time. Mm -hmm. I think there are others who were uh, maybe unpleasantly surprised by, by how much risk that they, they held in, in their contracts, or in some cases, pleasantly surprised, right? So, you know, as I said, um, some, on this volatility, there are losers of that volatility. There are also, there are also winners. You know, there are projects mm -hmm. that made years of expected revenue in days because of, of that volatility that they were on the right side of. But I think that that you know, even when you have a, a positive event of that volatility, it does remind you that, um, you know, what goes up uh, often can come down. Um, right. And so I would say that the, the appetite for risk management has, has generally um, gone up. I want to shift to just talking generally about some of the uh, materials you, you've put out, talking about the effects of intermittency on the grid system and different types of solutions. Lee, you may not know this, but about a year and a half ago when we started shifting our business to moving away from being a, a developer to a developer of integrated products, we broke the company up into two companies and Saluna Computing is more focused on bringing essentially flexible load, flexible computing to these facilities. When we were doing research for about six months or so, just to get a gauge of how big the market was, the pain points, we actually spoke to some of your colleagues at Resurity. I think we were introduced to your company by a, a very big sort of investor slash hedge fund out in California. And they said, you got to talk to those guys because they'll have a better sense of the market. And they were fascinated by what we, your team was fascinated by what we were doing and said, you should definitely look at it. And at some point there might be some collaboration. I guess the question I'd like to ask is how do you see yeah, I don't know if you've been tracking this, but how do you see this concept of bringing flexible load behind the meter affect some of the risks that projects are taking on? Can this serve as a uh, physical risk mitigation or energy costs mitigation, if you will? The way we think about it is that that, that supply intermittency mm -hmm. on the grid has, you know, two solutions. Both are, you know, necessary, not sufficient on their own. We, we talk about financial solutions to that mm -hmm. volatility. So if you have uh, a grid with 
weather dependent demand and weather dependent supply, you're going to have volatility that you want to manage. But you can't have a grid that exclusively uses financial solutions to volatility. You have to physically solve it too in order to keep it within so basically a, a manageable range and, and, and an insurable range uh, or a hedgeable range. And so what you're talking about, you know, we, the, there's a lot of you know, talk across renewables right now about the role of storage in order to shift mm-hmm. uh, you know, periods of uh, over, oversupply to periods right. of, of shortage. What you're talking about is the is the demand side of that because I think often you know demand of electricity is is very inelastic, That's generally right. not shiftable, uh, and so it's the burden has almost entirely historically been on the supply stack to try to figure out how do you match up with demand because it's just sort of taken as uh, as is. Um, mm-hmm. Demand response, dispatchable computing, these are the things that can help supply meet in the middle to to make sure that we are. Uh, bringing demand into the periods where you have that low supply. And so we think about that, uh, frankly, a lot in our modeling is like what's, whether it's dispatchable computing or uh, electric uh, vehicle charging that may shift towards periods of low price, the ability to move demand into the periods of current oversupply uh, Mm -hmm. is a major source of stability uh, in power markets. And so rather than having prices that are $3,000 one hour, and negative $30 another hour, which is not healthy long-term for the grid, right. Uh, right. you know, bringing those back into a level that is uh, more, a more manageable level of volatility is, I think, critical. And so we think about that on the risk side because it has that dollar per megawatt hour impact uh, that we spend a lot of time modeling. But mm-hmm. it also comes into some of the work we've been doing uh, on the emission side of things uh, because the you know in addition to the power price changing wildly every hour, the emissions impact of demand and, and supply is changing every hour as well, and mm-hmm. so uh, dispatchable computing plays a component there as well. Now, Lee, Resurity helps corporate clean power purchasers manage their energy costs through what I've read is a virtual power purchase agreement or a virtual PPA. I've read so many um, things that explain what a virtual PPA is. I still don't get it. Can you explain how that works for our listeners? What is that? So a virtual power purchase agreement is a financial contract, also called a contract for difference on power price. Mm -hmm. And so the way it fundamentally, so if someone says I've signed a VPPA for power from Wind Farm A in uh, North Texas at $20, what they mean is that uh, at the end of every month, Mm-hmm. Uh, they're basically guaranteeing $20 per megawatt hour to that project. And so at the end of the month, that project's going to say, I produced 10 megawatt hours and the realized value of power uh, for my production weighted, the, the energy I produced on a production weight basis was worth $25. So $5 above the PPA price. Uh-huh. And so the, in that case, the power price was above the PPA price. And so yep. the project would write a check to the, commercial industrial buyer for $5 times their generation, 10 megawatt hours, they would owe $50 to the CNI buyer uh, mm-hmm. of the, of the PPA. And so that is, and as a result of that, you know, the project net of that payment is back to $20. So basically they've got, they've, they, they generated power worth 20, but because they had to write 25, excuse me, they had to write a $5 check for every megawatt hour to the corporate buyer. They are now locked in at 20. If the flip side happens and they have a, a low price to the, let's say we went back to 2020 
and power mm -hmm. prices were $12 during mm -hmm. that month. During that month, and they, similarly, they produce 10 megawatt hours. The buyer of the PPA, the corporate buyer, has to write the project a check for $8 times generation 10. So they write an $80 check to the project so that the project earned $12 in the market and then received $8 uh, per megawatt hour from the corporate buyer. And so those combine to be $20. So it's a virtual power purchase agreement is effectively a guarantee on the price of power. And one whoever is is benefiting or falling, you know, from the realized price being above or below that writes the other party a check so that the project uh, net of the, the power purchase agreement settlement still makes that price. And, and that it's important for, you know, that is that that tool is often talked about as a hedge mm -hmm. for the corporate buyer, because if you are consuming electricity at the same place at the same time, you know, and power prices go up to $25, right? Mm -hmm. You as the as the corporate buyer are spending more on your energy, right? So your energy costs have gone up, but you're receiving a $5 check from the project. And so you as the buyer of power are again, sort of netting out to a more stable energy cost. And similarly, if power prices were $12, your energy bill has come down and you are, but you're writing a check to the wind farm uh, mm -hmm. And so net, you're back to a, a set value of power. That's only true if you're consuming electricity at the same time and place as you're buying it from the wind farm, which is very rarely true. I and see. so uh, that's where, you know, oftentimes you've got companies that have, you know, they might be from the Northeast or from California or they're from uh, overseas and, but they're buying, you know, wind power in Texas or solar power in Ohio. Uh, and so in that case, the settlement of that virtual power purchase agreement is effectively just a, an energy trade. It's a trade, right? It's a, a commodity mm -hmm. trade. And so the, it's either making money or losing money for them. And that creates a financial volatility that many of those buyers are, are now looking for ways to manage because they like the environmental benefits. They don't necessarily, uh, love some of the financial volatility that comes along with it. Some follow-up clarifying questions. So why is it called a virtual PPA? Because it's not about the delivery of the electrons. It's just about the sort of fixing of the power cost. Correct. So a physical power purchase agreement is when you're making uh, a contract to actually buy the electrons that are coming off of that project. And so, um, or to the extent, you know, you're, you're, you're buying in the same location that that, that project is, is injecting power into. Mm -hmm. uh, a virtual power purchase agreement basically just means it's a financial swap and not a physical purchase of power. Interesting. So it's it's a swap of the differences between the target price, that that PPA price and where the market was. But the, so the the, the seller of the energy sells their, their energy into the wholesale power market, wherever they're located. Correct. And then they, so, they either write a check or get a check from the, from the, the, the other side of the PPA, I guess. The buyer exactly the right. The, the project is effectively running a merchant plant. So they're just bidding into the real-time and day-ahead markets mm -hmm. at their location as they see fit. And they earn the revenue that they earn from that. And then mm -hmm. they separately have this virtual power purchase agreement financial contract with a third party, the settlement of which helps them manage the volatility of the revenue that comes from that merchant operations. Got it. 
So I see why the seller does. I see. I guess. I guess I see why both sides do it. Right. That the seller of energy is looking to use the VPPA to smooth or you know shield them from the volatility of of what they could make selling into the market, and the buyer is using it to make their costs uh, less volatile. Right. Correct. Pretty cool. And w- how old is this this uh, this agreement? This concept. Uh, so the virtual power purchase agreement, uh, Google was the first to, to use it, and that would have been around sort of the you oh, know, wow. 20, was that 2010, 2011, sort of was the, I think, the first groups to do it. Um, yeah. And then it obviously has grown uh, significantly since then with a, a large battery of, of uh, commercial industrial buyers using that tool today. So it's, mm-hmm. it's about... You know, it's about 10 years old uh, at this point, and it was effectively the, the virtual or the financial extension of what, what the utilities were doing. So utilities were signing physical power purchase agreements to buy power to physically serve the consumers of electricity that, that were their clients. Right. Uh, that um, model was basically uh, turned into a financial contract for purposes of, of purchasing power when you actually weren't necessarily consuming electricity at that location. Very cool. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's amazing how, you know, just about every segment of the market, right? There's innovation taking place, and it's not necessarily techn- technological innovation. There's financial innovation, financial engineering to some extent that you can build as well, right? That solves for these different problems. Uh, so thanks for thanks for that uh, quick education. Uh, I want to talk about something you released recently called the Local Marginal Emissions uh, Carbon Data Tool. Uh, I guess it measures and it. It's kind of help to measure and maximize carbon impact of clean energy projects. Could you talk a little bit about that? What is that? Yeah, happy to. So this is a data tool that we we actually first released it uh, in our first market, which was ERCOT, in the middle of last year. What we released uh, a couple of weeks ago was uh, the second um, market, which uh, was so we first launched it in ERCOT. It has now been released in in PJM uh, for the Mid Atlantic region. And so, mm-hmm. what locational marginal emissions are is simply just you know by location in the grid and mm-hmm. by hour. It's a measurement of the carbon intensity of any incremental consumption or generation at that location. And oh. so, um, basically. In, in power markets, value in a dollar perspective is defined as locational marginal price. And so at yep. every location, at every moment, you basically say, you know, what is the value of me injecting one more megawatt hour of, of electricity into the grid at this time at this location? Or what is the cost for me to draw power out? And that's all driven by where else in the grid uh, a power plant needs to ramp up or ramp down to serve mm-hmm. that incremental consumption or incremental generation. Mm-hmm. And what is their what is their cost of generation? So that's mm-hmm. where uh, the, the concept comes from. Locational marginal emissions is just the environmental equivalent of that. So mm-hmm. if you're going to inject uh, one more um, megawatt hour into one location, that means a plant somewhere else in your grid is shutting down to accommodate mm-hmm. the fact that you're bringing that in uh, and, and that has a measurable carbon impact. And so, you know, just like power prices, hour by hour, location by location, emissions rates can change fairly dramatically from, 
you know, a ton or, you know, even slightly more than a ton per megawatt hour when you've got coal uh, on, mm -hmm. on the margin to mm -hmm. uh, in some, you know, zero, if you zero tons of carbon, if you've got wind or solar on the margin to in some cases, even the, the rate can be negative for reasons of, of redispatch in the grid, but basically you've got this huge range. And so this, you know, depending on where and when you're consuming electricity and where and when you're generating electricity, the carbon impact of those activities uh, can be very, very different. Uh, and so locational marginal emissions lets you measure that in a way that average emissions, which has been uh, the status quo of emissions um, uh, monitoring, uh, mm -hmm. just simply doesn't allow. That's super cool. Like how, don't you need to know the dispatching that's taking place? Like what what's actually on <laughs> that that's dispatched at that particular location to know that? Do you have that data then? It, you do need to do that, and and, uh, and and how you do it changes ISO by ISO because each each enterprise cool. system operator publishes uh, a different set of information that that sort of tells you how the grid is performing at any given moment, and and that is everything mm -hmm. from you know uh, the the offer curves from generators in that market to right. what the locational marginal price is at every location to uh, you know, definition of what the congestion uh, network looks like, where there is congestion through uh, this data set called a shift factor matrix, which tells mm -hmm. you how different lines are being congested or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, different markets are, are, are published different amounts of information. PJM, for example, they actually mm -hmm. publish starting just a few months ago, locational marginal emissions only starting in 2021 and only for uh, some locations, but they actually publish that data for some locations in some time periods. Uh, ERCOT, for example, publishes uh, no locational marginal emissions, so you basically have to calculate it from the financial uh, and physical data that is coming off of the grid. But yes, basically what our, our methodology does is uses the information the grid is releasing to identify mm -hmm. which project or more commonly which set of of generators are on the margin at any moment and as soon as you know which physical generators are on the margin you can mm -hmm. say what their emissions rates are and you have the emissions intensity of, of that location so how do you, how have your customers responded to that that i mean it just seems like a super cool tool very positively, happily. So, you know, I think we break our, our customers down in four locational margin emissions into, so there's, there's the consumers of electricity. So these are, uh, you know, the Microsofts and the Akamai's of the world who are using locational marginal emissions to uh, quantify the impact of their existing clean energy contracts. They already have uh, wind contracts and solar contracts. Um, and they're looking to measure the impact, uh, the, the carbon impact of, of those clean electrons they're already buying. And then cool. also to inform uh, which projects they want to contract with next, um, because right. they can be pretty significant. You know, if you even look in ERCOT as an example, if you take just ERCOT West and just solar, um, you can still have, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent differences in the carbon intensity of one West Texas solar project versus another. Uh, and so as a buyer of power, you want to know that before you've signed the PPA with, with that project and, and locked in your commitment to them for 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, the other group that is uh, using it most actively is storage, because, um, you know, storage is just load and generation combined. And so right. when you think about average emissions, if you're averaging over time and, and, and space for emissions factors, almost every storage project looks like a net emitter of carbon because 
Rapture proficiency is less than 100%, so they cause more generation to happen. Therefore, they have the reputation of, of, of causing emissions. Uh, and in some cases, that's, that's true. In, in some cases, it's definitely not true because a storage project, for example, can be sited in a location where uh, you have an oversupply of clean uh, energy whenever it's windy or sunny. And so you've got a bunch of curtailed electrons being, you know, shut down where, where projects are being shut down from that oversupply. Mm -hmm. A storage project is there; it can charge with those electrons that are otherwise being curtailed. And so, it basically there is zero net carbon impact of of their consumption of electricity. If they then sit there and wait until the sun goes down and the wind dies, and a coal plant ramps back up, and they discharge during those hours when coal is on the margin. They are crowding out uh, high intensity carbon emissions uh, electrons with carbon free electrons and actually reducing the carbon emissions of the grid through their own dispatch. Mm. Uh, and so that's a, another group. Uh, lastly, is, you know, and this is something I think we should talk about with, with your, your uh, business, right, is mm -hmm. uh, that dispatchable load demand response. Um, because if you are consuming electricity for crypto or any other reason, right? You're going to, and, and you're measuring that with uh, an average intensity, but you're doing that. And, and then you shift your business model to consume electricity from periods when, uh, or locations or times uh, right. that are abundant or in renewables, the, the emissions intensity of your activities goes way down. Locational yeah. marginal emissions lets, lets you measure that for the first time. That's awesome. Yeah, that's exactly, you took the words right out of my, out of my mouth that, you know, we should talk about this, <laughs> uh, you know, after the show, because um, we are, I mean, we use LMP as sort of like a, a, a search tool, if you will. Correct. Uh, yeah. But LME would be an interesting way to also search, right? Combine LMP plus LME to see what projects we should, we should um, work with and also where uh, demand response might be a really helpful way to sort of um, reduce the emissions of a particular location. Very exciting. Super yeah, cool. It's really, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you raised the relationship with, uh, with price because in, in some mm -hmm. cases, those are very highly related. So if you're in mm -hmm. you know, a market that has a bunch of, of solar and, and uh, the power on the grid is, you know, the LMP is, is $0 a megawatt hour. It's, it's because solar is setting the margin and, and that's where they're, where they're bidding. Uh, right. if, you're in a, if you're in a wind heavy location and power prices are more like negative 20 or negative 30, it's because wind is on the margin and they're bidding down to the value of their production yeah. tax credit. So right. that's, that's a very clear signal. And you know, those are um, going to be zero uh, emission electrons. But right. as you get out of zero and you get into where you've got efficient gas and inefficient gas and coal commingling, the, the, the relationship between price and carbon can, can be not obvious, right? And so right. Uh, exactly. you know, locational marginal emissions data lets you uh, optimize for the emissions footprint uh, of your demand response activities. Well, that's fantastic. Love the, the, the products that you've built and are building. Really, really cool stuff. Looking forward, uh, Lee, I'd like to talk a little bit about a company like yours is sort of at the nexus of, of everything happening in the industry. Um, it's funny when I saw you at the conference, I think one of the panelists says, well, I'll let you go first. I mean, you're, you're like, the, you're like the guy. <laughs> it's true. There's some interesting questions that we have to ask, right? One question is, you know, what does the, 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 the war between Russia and U Ukraine mean for renewables? Is it a, is it a catalyzer for more renewable energy? Um, what's your take on that? 
you know, it's it's impacting energy markets globally, and 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 you know, it's certainly a contributor to the price of natural gas, which brings up the value of of power generally, and 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 also highlights the volatility of of something that requires uh, fossil fuels. We talked about you know early mm-hmm. in the show. One of the great economic benefits uh, of renewables is the fuel is free. And so you don't have this geopolitical, you know, it's not like geopolitical activities right. are going to cause wind or, or sunshine to get more expensive overnight. Right. And so I think it has highlighted the uh, volatility of a, of a hydro, hydrocarbon based system uh, that can be abated with, with renewables. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it, in terms of the impact on renewables, I, I think it's a lot of the, Frankly, the domestic policy issues that are having bigger impact, bigger uncertainty, the the you know the, the fate of the Build Back Better bill, uh, mm-hmm. and its um, the, its environmental components, uh, if what and when uh, the Biden administration does around some of the solar panel tariffs um, that are in place and, and being investigated, I mm-hmm. think there's the, the level of policy driven uncertainty in the domestic market. I think as a as a you know. How long that sticks around and what it looks like on the other side is 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 a bigger contributor than 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 some of the geopolitical issues, uh, Ukraine and otherwise. Interesting perspective. There, there's a lot of uh, talk. Uh, we're part of that talk uh, around the nexus of crypto and clean energy. What do you think are the the biggest challenges or opportunities for that that nexus? I think the biggest opportunity is how do the right how how are those complementary? Right? Because I think the the mm-hmm. You know, the opportunity for crypto as a democratizing force in finance and, and the benefits that can come with it are offset by the fact that they, you know, crypto mining is energy intensive and energy intensive mm-hmm. industries drive emissions. And so what are the opportunities to collaborate between the renewables industry and uh, right. the crypto mining industry to really reduce as much as possible the, the intensity there? And that is co-locating with those uh, locations potentially as, as you're looking at demand response that is you know mm-hmm. optimized on a carbon signal to, to try to you know measure and, and minimize the the carbon impact uh, of, a, of, a, of a crypto activity uh, so mm-hmm. I think it's it's critical that, that that gets done and and is important that we can bring that you know to bear particularly in the the absence of much success on the on the transmission um, side of, of the clean energy industry's build out. Um, because if you can't if you can't transmit it to where the, the load is, uh, the next best thing is to, to bring the load to where, where you have that where you have that supply. Uh, yeah. And so the opportunity for crypto to do that. So I think that's from our perspective, that's that's critical. Um, and we hope that tools like, you know, uh, our, our LME measurement can, can help do that in, in really effective ways. Investors, it's clear that there's a tremendous amount of capital coming into the space right now, into the renewable energy space. It doesn't always have a place to go but what do you think are the opportunities and challenges ahead for investors in the in in the space right now i think the biggest challenge for investors is just keeping up with the you know the pace of change because you know investing in as we said investing in renewables a decade ago meant investing in something that has a ppa with a utility so you have no price risk no credit risk no congestion risk uh you had you know whether overall generation risk but where we are today is you've got projects that have significantly higher merchant exposure, congestion exposure. Um, there are solutions to that by, you know, commingling with, with load, commingling different fuel sources, uh, bringing storage online. So I think it's just, uh, you know, the, the energy industry was not, uh, from, from my perspective, a, 
you know, a terribly fast moving place for a long time. And then the last decade, it went into sort of hyperspeed. And so yeah. um, keep, keeping up with that and, and understanding those risks as fast as possible and figuring out ways to, to mitigate them, to keep the cost of capital as low as possible for the industry to, to feed that growth is, is I think, the, the challenge for, for everybody who's bring, bringing a checkbook to the industry. to the lightning round uh this is where i just hit you with a bunch of interesting you know broad spectrum questions <laughs> sure the first is really just looking at next year or well we're recording in 2022 what do you see or what would you love to see uh come true by the end of this year anything yeah tying back to the comment i had earlier uh I think the things I'd like to see is the policy uncertainties uh, to, to go mm. away for this industry. The yeah. uh, Build Back Better bill coming to fruition, ideally or or, or not, and and uh, import tariff issues that are that are impacting so significantly the solar industry. Uh, I think that you know the, the renewables and the clean energy industry overall has shown a great deal of resilience to succeed in all sorts of different regulatory regimes. The one that it is uh, nearly impossible to to succeed in is uh, just the an uncertain regime where you just don't know what's going to happen, mm. uh, and so um, bringing around uh, some finite answers to some of those large uh, existential questions on on what projects cost and how they're going to get financed uh, would be my top of my wish list for the industry for this year. Um, as an entrepreneur, how do you sort of keep yourself up to up to date on? being a CEO and fighting the good fight as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneur building a company? Well, so in, in terms of staying up, what, what's up to date of what's coming in the market, I'd say mostly that's just getting in front of our clients, right? So our mm-hmm. clients' problems are our, our biggest source of, of innovation, right? What, what isn't being solved for them today? And you know that, that's where locational marginal emissions came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, Microsoft said they knew there was a, a better way to, to measure this and, and they weren't seeing it in the market and they felt like they needed it. And we were able to develop that, you know, uh, we've, um, so that, that's been the source of, uh, of innovation, uh, for, for us there and why I'll keep attending you know, all these conferences going forward. Right. That's great. Favorite book, uh, you've ever read or great book you've read recently. Well, so I'll, I'll have a. A work-related one and a non-work-related one that I'm, I'm reading uh, both right mm-hmm. now. So one is called Power Brokers, which is basically a sort of a, a history of, of the power markets and, and deregulation of those power markets. Really interesting what, what shaped uh, the industry that got us to where uh, we are today. And then the, uh, the fun book is, oh God, now I'm going to forget the name of the title, but it's uh, about a, a guy growing up as a surfer uh, in, in Hawaii um, and it's just a, a great, I think it's a true story about his life, but a great read about a very different lifestyle than my own here in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. If you remember it uh, later, send it to us. We'll, we'll, put, them in, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, and I'll pick up Power Brokers. I, I, I never read that one before. Lee, it's been, uh, it's been a great time here getting to know you and uh, Resurity. As I said, love what you're doing. Super cool. Learned a lot uh, from you today. Thanks so much for taking the time. Very much appreciate you having me on. You can find more information on what you heard today in our show notes. To learn more about Saluna and our innovative projects, visit our website at salunacomputing.com or visit our blog, Clean Integration on Medium. To join our growing community, connect with us on LinkedIn by searching for Saluna and following our company page. 
or tag us on Twitter. We're at Saluna Holdings. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to Clean Integration, a Saluna podcast. And remember, computing is a better battery.